How are you doing today? You awake? I just taught uh, once a year, I teach uh, a class on the church to our young people. They call it the ramp class. They're ramping from children's church into the youth program, and so they're, they're passing from fifth grade into sixth grade. And I am so encouraged not one of them fell asleep on me this morning. It was such a blessing. Not one of them fell asleep. It was great. Okay, I have a crazy idea, okay? How many of you were raised in Sunday school? Raise your hand. Okay? Stand up if you were raised in Sunday school. If you weren't, you get to sit this out, and you may be glad. That doesn't mean the rest of you. Okay. <clears throat> I want to see if this brings back any memories. I may never march. <laughs> Really? Come on. You may be seated. Now, see all of you who were not raised in Sunday school, what you missed. Did you know that song, Pastor Michael? You weren't doing the motions. I, I was going to have you come lead them because, but how many think Pastor Michael should have led the motions this morning? Yep. I'll know next time. All right. <clears throat> you ready? Do you love the Word of the Lord? There was a guy named Leroy Imes, E-I-M-S, Leroy Imes. He was serving in the Marines in the South Pacific during World War II. Leroy says, shortly after we hit the beach, our armored amphibious tank took two artillery shells broadside. We immediately evacuated our disabled vehicle and darted from hole to hole toward the enemy airstrip, which we were to take. So the sergeant began to check on us to make sure that we were okay. He crawled over to me, Leroy, and he says, you all right, Imes? I answered, yes, sir, I'm okay, Sarge. And he looked at me and he said, Imes, where's your helmet? He said, uh, I felt the top of his, my head, he said, um... It must be in the, back in the tank, Sarge. Okay. Where's your duty belt? A duty belt was carried ammunition for the rifles and a canteen of water and a, and a bayonet. Well, it must be in the tank, Sarge. As a matter of fact, Imes, where's your rifle? Now he looked at me with disgust and pity because I realized that in our hasty departure, he said, from the amphibious tank, I was dressed about the same way I would be dressed for a game of volleyball. And here I was, hopping from hole to hole and from tree to tree. Now, some of you have already guessed where we're going with this today. But this, unfortunately, reveals the truth in many ways about the modern church. Because many Christians have forgotten that the Christian life is not a playground, it is a battlefield. How many know I'm telling the truth? As a result, 
Very few of God's people are really adequately armed, equipped, and ready to wage spiritual battle. But here is the truth. My responsibility is to give you the truth of the Word of God. And here's the truth. Whether you know it or not, whether you were raised in Sunday school or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you give credence to it or not, you and I are in a spiritual battle. And the enemy is out to utterly destroy us and to decimate us. And the Christian life is not a walk, it is warfare. Before we go to the table of the Lord this morning, which we will at the conclusion of this service, we're going to take a look at that very famous passage in Ephesians 6, where the Apostle Paul makes clear that the Christian life is not just a walk in the park. In fact, the word he uses in many versions of Scripture is the word wrestle, which indicates hand-to-hand combat. It's, it's not just standing at some distance away and firing bullets at the enemy, but, but rather it's face-to-face and hand-to-hand wrestling. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But we must recognize that God has called us not only to be His servants, and we know that, but He has also called us to be His soldiers. And so the question ever rings out today, who is on the Lord's side? It was in the late 1800s that the hymn writer, a lady by the name of Frances Havergal, her name is not all that well known to us, though many of her hymns are. I had the privilege of, of um, orchestrating a, a company, and I wasn't, back, I wasn't alive when she was. I know you think I was, but I wasn't alive back then. But I orchestrated 10 songs of her hymns for a particular company many years ago, and the one that caught my attention was the one by that title. In fact, you'll hear me reference it every once in a while. The title is, Who Was on the Lord's Side? She was in the late 1800s when she wrote this, and there's a fourth verse that captures my attention today, and I want you to hear it. And here's what she said. This was in the 1800s, and how true it even is, if not all the more so today. She says in that fourth verse, fierce may be the conflict, strong may be the foe, but the king's own army none can overthrow. Round his standard ranging, victory is secure, for his truth unchanging makes the triumph sure. The refrain says, joyfully enlisting by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. My question today to you is, how many are on the Lord's side? Are you on the Lord's side? Say amen today. Here's the way our Lord said it to us clearly. He said, in this world, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. So from the moment you step into the kingdom of God, which is that moment that you say yes to Jesus, until the moment when you join the triumphant church around the throne of God, you and I, dear one, we are engaged in a serious a threatening and dangerous battle that we dare not ever take so lightly. So, why do I bring this up today? Why is this burning on my heart today? What exactly has drawn me 
to this passage of Scripture that is so familiar to us. I'm going to tell you exactly why. It was triggered by a phone call that I received this week from a friend of mine who lives in another state, in the other part of the country, who called with a word for me. And I don't need to go into the specifics of the details of the word for me, only to say that he said something that truly, truly riveted my heart, awakened my sensitivities, it stirred my soul, and it caused me to go before the Lord to seek the guidance and help of our great helper. Now, when he gave me this word, it, it, I don't, I'm not even sure he knew he was doing that. He wasn't spooky in his delivery. He didn't use King James language. His tone was really conversational. He didn't preface it with any verbiage that would indicate this is a word from the Lord. He didn't say anything like that, no. But all I can tell you is what I experienced on my end of the line because clearly there was an intensity about it that I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was speaking to me through this friend. We started off the conversation, you know, very casually. And suddenly in the midst of it, and I don't know that it was deliberate that that's why he called, but in the midst of it, he began just talking. And all of a sudden, I had that sense that God was speaking to me. And it just literally, it, it, it grabbed me to the core of my being. You know what I'm talking about. And so not to disturb him, I honestly, I was so taken by the presence of God in that moment, I, I just began speaking softly in my prayer language, as is often the case when I recognize a circumstance that is bigger than I am. And essentially, he said this. He said, Dan, the circumstance that you were in, that you were facing, he was not referencing the physical challenges that Becky and I have experienced in the last three or four months, though we could have. But he said, Dan, this circumstance that you are facing is a diversionary tactic of the enemy. It is a subversive attempt to derail you from the goal. It is dynamically strategic as it occupies your attention and it demands your resources of time and energy. But make no mistake about it. This is a diversionary tactic of the enemy. Did he get my attention? Mm -hmm. So my response, I mean, we were clear what the circumstance was. Both of us were clear about that. And I thought, wow, wow. I just thought this was something else I was supposed to be dealing with. And don't we do that? Don't we, don't we just absorb the next thing? Don't we just see it as the next bump in the road? Don't we then try to just rely upon our experience or our own resources to simply process this and try to then just navigate our way through it? Well, okay, i got to muscle up for this one too, and I'm going to get through this somehow. Never really giving it a thought that it may be a diabolical scheme, a demonic scheme to derail you, if not destroy you, and at least, at the very least, it is being used to remove your eyes from the goal. It so resonated with me, and I could not shake it. 
I haven't shaken it off yet this morning, that I had to then come before you today to simply ask you, can you, dear friend, identify the diversionary tactic that the enemy has employed in your life today? Or, what is your diversion? How is the enemy trying to get you off track? What is occupying your time and attention to keep you from being relentless in your pursuit of Christ? Who is it? What is it that's being used to derail you? Is it a person? Is it a relationship? Is it possibly someone who has come shrouded as an angel of light? They know all the right lingo. They know what to say. But in reality, the enemy is using them as a messenger of darkness. What's derailing you today? What's diverting you today? Is it a device that you hold in your hand? Is it an application on that device? Is it social media? Is it pain, be it physical, emotional, or psychological? Is it cultural thinking or something about the spirit of the age that has fascinated you? Is it misplaced priorities? You do know the primary enemy of the best in your life is the second best. The thing that is fighting the best in your life is the second best. Is it diverting you today? When they wanted to negotiate with Nehemiah, he said, no, 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 no. I'm doing a great work and cannot come now off of this wall. I got to go deeper. Has the American, and dare I say it, the Texas culture of bigger, higher, louder, faster, brighter, so found its way in your thinking? Has success by the world's standards, so seeped into your mindset that you have allowed it to divert you from God's standards for your life. In one of his devotionals, Oswald Chambers says this, and it cropped up this week during my devotional reading. God called Jesus Christ to what seemed to be absolute disaster. And Jesus Christ called his disciples only to see him put to death, leading every one of them to the place where their hearts were broken. His life, Jesus, was an absolute failure from every standpoint except God's. But what seemed to be failure from man's standpoint was a triumph from God's standpoint. Because God's purpose is never the same as man's purpose. Diversion. What's diverting your attention today? What is holding you back from your relentless pursuit of Christ? Speaking of Oswald Chambers, who authored that incredibly well-known devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest which I read most every morning and I have done so for decades. There's a devotion for 
365 days of the year, and then you start over. Do you know the story behind that book that has blessed literally hundreds of millions of people? If you, like me, have read those devotionals ever in your life, let me tell you that you only have that book because of the crushing disappointment of a man who would not be diverted, who would not allow the second best or the third best to take the place of the best for his life. Oswald Chambers was a British military chaplain in World War I. At 40 years of age, he volunteered to go to Egypt in the shadow of the pyramids to meet in a little hut with some British teenagers who would soon go off to Turkey and die in World War I. If you see a picture of the place where they met, it it, it looks like a a hut, a shanty, a a lean-to, so devoted to Christ that the circumstances didn't matter, and he would not be diverted from his calling and his mission in life. Success by the world standard? No, not at all. He would not be diverted, even if it meant going to a far place to meet with only a handful of kids. No success by the world's standards. But here's what's interesting about the story. His bride, Gertrude, had the ability to take shorthand at 200 words per minute. Now, for those of you who have no clue what shorthand is, ask an old person around you. Before the days of email, when real letters were written, the boss would call in his secretary who had been trained in the skill of shorthand, and the boss would dictate his letter to that secretary. And though he might talk at his normal pace of of speaking, she would be able to get every word of it down through the skill of, of shorthand. And so every word that Oswald Chambers said in that little hut was notated by his bride. But then right in the middle of that effort, he got appendicitis with a pain in his side one day. They told him he needed surgery, but he would not take the bed of a British soldier who was harmed. And so therefore he died, Oswald Chamber died of a ruptured appendix. And they buried him in a military cemetery there in Cairo. He didn't even make it back home. It looked as though his life had been a disaster. Here was a promising young minister who was also a gifted artist and musician, having trained at London's Royal Academy of Art. But once he sensed God's direction for ministry, he would not be diverted, while everyone else would say, what a waste. His wife and little baby went back to London, broke, penniless, broken, Tried to live with some relatives, couldn't do that, so she opened a boarding house. And after she got the eight boarders away for the day, she would go down to the damp basement with a manual typewriter, and she transcribed those words she had written down in the little hut in Egypt as her husband shared them with that small group of young people. And when you and a hundred million people open that book, you are reading those words that she transcribed in the basement of that little boarding house. It looked as if it were a tragedy, and yet God had something else in mind, and he accomplished it through a servant, through a soldier of his who would not be diverted. What is your diversion today? 
What is your diversion? And what if it's something that you would not expect? What if it's something you have not yet identified? You've called it something else. You've given it another name. You've categorized it another way. But it is a diversion. What if the Holy Spirit would reveal it to you today? And certainly, I hope that there are none of us in the house who would believe that we are exempt from Satan's diversionary tactics because I'm here to tell you, you are not just as I am not. And if you think you're not being diverted, then here's a good test for us to run on you today. How's your devotional life? Re no, really, really. How's your devotional life? How's your prayer life? Both privately and corporately. How's your marriage? How's your service in the kingdom? And here's where I go to Madeline. Or have you decided you're exempt from that as well? And then I would ask, what would it take to draw you back into proper alignment? What words need to be said? What event needs to take place for you to get your eyes back on the goal? What goal, Dan? What goal? We'll get to that in a minute, but let's read our passage. Ephesians 6. I've already told you we're going there, starting with verse 10. You know this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the schemes of the devil, the strategies of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up or put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, the belt of, put on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. But above all, Take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints." There's all of the obvious things that we can read there, but there's something I think we miss when we read it. I preface it by saying this. This journey of faith is a walk. It's not a run. It's not a sprint. It's a walk. We've been reminded by that by others who've been in this pulpit from Isaiah 40. They remind us, it says, they shall mount up with wings as an eagle. They shall be, fly or soar as an eagle. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Notice the sequence of that. Flying, running, walking. But to hear some folks talk about the journey of faith, you would almost think it's the other way around, as if you're supposed to walk and then run and then fly. But that's not the way it is. It is a walk of faith. And even in that walk, I'm sure many of us know that you can get tired in that walk and feel like you cannot go on another step. Even in the walk of faith, I can't do it anymore. There's nothing left in me to go on another step. 
But Paul makes it so clear here what to do in that moment of utter exhaustion when you feel like you can't go on. He says, having done all, then stand firm. If you can't walk, then just stand strong, standing in the power of His might. And so there you stand with the armor of God on. You have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. And that's now what we call being dressed for success when you have all of those things. But there is something curious about it. In Paul's description of the armor, it should be noted that there is no mention of protection for your back. You may not be able at all times to walk forward, but even in those moments, even in those times of utter exhaustion, with every temptation to retreat, with every temptation and urge to turn back, the admonition is to stand and not turn around to walk backward, for if you do, there is no protection. You must either be walking or standing strong. However, Paul makes it clear that you are never to stop praying in the Spirit and never stop praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to stand strong in the power of His might even while the enemy is unleashing his diversionary tactics on us. So what is he diverting you from? What is the goal that the enemy wants to keep you from attaining? He wants to divert you from the goal of knowing Christ and making Him known. He wants to divert you from fulfilling God's plan for your life at ministry, regardless how it looks to everyone else and their standards. He wants to... Oh, God, let somebody hear this today. He wants to divert you from walking in daily close communion with God. He wants to divert you from living a life fully surrendered to God and living fully under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He wants to keep you from trusting in the Lord with all of your heart, leaning not into your own understanding and all of your ways acknowledging Him so that He can direct your path. He wants to do any and everything He can to keep you from knowing the full measure of God's distinctive working in your life with all of its specifics. Satan has a diversionary tactic employed and engaged at this very moment to get you off track. And it might even be shocking to you to discover what that diversionary tactic is. I don't say that to scare you, but I do say it to get your attention, just as someone got my attention this week. Because why am I so intense about this? First of all, I feel this to the core of my being today. And I know that some of you aren't even sure what I'm saying is real. Dr. Tony Evans has a fabulous way of communicating this idea that Paul gives us, speaking of wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness of the age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And here's what he says. It's a fabulous statement from Dr. Tony Evans. He says, everything visible and physical is preceded by something which is invisible 
and spiritual. Let me say it again. Everything visible and physical is preceded by something which is invisible and spiritual. What he's really saying is this. You must acknowledge the fact that there is a spiritual realm. How many know that's the truth today? And that there is more, much more to this life than that which you can simply see, hear, taste, smell, and touch. Therefore, he says, if you want the visible and physical cure, you must surely identify the invisible and spiritual cause. If you want the visible and physical cure, you must surely identify the invisible and spiritual cause. And here's the way I'm saying it to you today. Can you identify your diversion? Here's what you can identify today. We can clearly identify the enemy. It is Satan, the devil, Lucifer, the slanderer, the accuser. And he is a liar. And he's working hard to get you and me to believe a lie. And Paul calls him by name in our text today. We can identify his name and we can identify his nature. Verse 11 tells us that he is a shrewd enemy. We put on the armor of God to stand against the wiles of the enemy, King James says. That word wiles in verse 11 is the same word from which we get our English word method. It refers to craftiness or, or, or trickery. In Ephesians 4, it's translated like this, someone who is lying in wait. Lying and waiting, it gives the image of a hunter disguising himself in order to capture his prey. And he's working his plan to divert you today, stopping at nothing to do it. We know his nature. We know he is a spiritual enemy, according to verse 12. All too often, church, we are guilty of fighting the wrong enemy. We will get at odds with our spouse or with our fellow believers or with our boss or, or we, we get into it with our family members or a co-worker when the real enemy, according to what the Word of God is saying to us today, it is not flesh and blood. It is none other than the devil himself. Let's be clear about who the enemy is. And he is a master at sowing discord amongst us. He might work through people at times to get to us and to cause us to stumble, but the real battle is fought on a spiritual level. Everything visible and physical is preceded by something which is invisible and spiritual. Therefore, if you want the visible and physical cure, you must surely identify the invisible and spiritual cause. And the answer is not in attacking other people. Our battle is with an unseen army of spiritual enemies led by Satan. And so how do you fight him? This story from World War II concerning General George C. Patton will help us see it a little more clearly. Patton's troops and tanks were engaged in a successful counterattack of German forces under General Erwin Rommel. Patton is reported to have shouted in the thick of the battle, I read your book, Rommel! I read your book! And that he did. 
In Rommel's book, Infantry Attacks, the famed desert fox carefully de detailed his military strategy. And Patton, having read it and knowing what to expect, planned his moves accordingly. Well, here's the news today. Satan has authored no book. But God has fully exposed our enemy's tactics in His holy word. And we've read the book. So study it and plan your defense. The key to defeating the enemy is understanding how he works. To not stick your head in the sand and assume that thing that has come your way, that's caught you off guard, is just the next thing you have to deal with. No, it's a diversionary tactic of the enemy. And the secret to understanding is reading it about what God says how to deal with, this, with Satan in the Word of God. How's your devotional life? How are you being diverted? You may say, well, Pastor Dan, I, I don't have the energy to, to fight the enemy. Good, neither do I. Our text makes it clear that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. So our strength comes from the power of His might. When a believer's faith is in God, then God's power becomes the power of that believer. Let me put it this way. I cannot fly. But when I put myself in an airplane and I yield to its power, suddenly I have the ability to soar through the air. I cannot run 65 miles an hour. But when I get into my car and I yield to its power, I suddenly have the ability to achieve speeds that I could never achieve on my own. Unfortunately, sometimes they're more than 65 miles an hour. And as pathetic and weak as those illustrations are, when my faith and your faith is in God and in His power, then guess what, church? Here's the good news today. His strength becomes your strength. His power becomes your power. And that's why the Bible says what it does to those who live by faith in Ephesians. Now unto Him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh within us. Mark 11, Jesus answering saith unto them, have faith in God, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatever he saith. That's the power of God working within you. Mark chapter 9, Jesus said unto him, If thou can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. John 14, verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And I say to you today, Bethesda, though the enemy is out to utterly destroy you, to decimate you, and to divert you from the plan of God for your life, here's what you and I can stand upon today. Greater is he that's in us than he that's within the world. And no weapon formed against you will prosper. And so today you can stand strong in the power of His might. Gary Redding writes, During the war between the states, a Union soldier from Ohio was shot in the arm during the Battle of Shiloh. 
His captain saw he was wounded and barked out an order. Give me your gun, private, and get to the rear. The private handed over his rifle and ran toward the north, seeking safety. But after covering two or three hundred yards, he came upon another skirmish. And so then he ran to the east, but he ran into another part of the battle. And then he ran to the west, but he encountered more fighting there. And finally, he ran back to the front lines shouting, Give me back my gun, Captain. There ain't no rear to this battle. When it comes to spiritual warfare, church, there ain't no rear to the battle. There is nowhere to run. The battle is all around us. The best we can do is put our faith in the awesome power of God and stand strong in the power of His might. Now, obviously, when you preach on this text, you feel responsibility to delineate and go through each of the pieces of armor. I'm not going to do that today. Perhaps we'll do that some other time. Because I don't want to in any way take away from the pointed edge of this message, which is to ask you today to consider and be aware and awaken your sensitivity to how the enemy is diverting you from your goal. You're in a fight this morning. Some of you are more aware of it than others. But here is the good news, church. We are not fighting for victory today. We are fighting from victory. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Our commander-in-chief has already won the victory for us. All we have to do is get up, get dressed for success in the armor, stand up and line up awaiting our marching orders, and he will lead us to victory. But we must not allow ourselves to be diverted as the ushers come to serve the elements of communion today, I have one final idea to present to you. Everyone else, please remain where you are. Print if you'll come. But I want you to hear this final idea carefully, please. It's from an Old Testament story. It's found in 1 Chronicles chapter 5. I honestly just happened on it. Because when you talk about spiritual warfare, this Ephesians 6 is the first go-to passage for, for all of us. But I discovered something else as I was snooping around in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles 5. It's this. We may all be in a fight, but not everyone gets help in the fight. That's why some people would rather turn around and retreat, turn around and go back. In this Old Testament story, we have the children of Israel, sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Come ahead and serve the folks, please. Ushers, please serve the people as I communicate this. Now, you would think all the Israelites would get helped by God in battle, wouldn't you? You would think surely they would. Wouldn't you think also that all Christians 
would be helped by God when fighting their battles. It ought to be just an automatic thing. When you sign up for Christianity, that means certain things. Well, here's the reality. Some do get help and some don't. What's the difference? You need to hear this. You need to listen to me. Come close for just a second. What's the secret? Let me read you just four verses from 1 Chronicles. Chapter 5. There were 44,760 capable warriors in the armies of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, the children of Israel. They were all skilled in combat and armed with shields, swords, and bows. They waged war against the Hagrites, the Jeterites, the Naphishites, the Notabites, and all the ites. I'm just glad I made it through that verse. But they cried out to God, listen to me. They cried out to God during the battle. And He answered their prayer because they trusted in Him. So the Hagrites and all of their allies were defeated. Oh, <laughs> defeated, my goodness. The plunder taken from the Hagrites included 50,000 camels, 250,000 sheep and goats, 2,000 donkeys, and 100,000 captives. So what's the difference in those who get help in their battle and those who don't? What's the secret? It's very simple. Why were they helped by God? Because in the middle of their battle, they cried out to God. In the middle, during the battle, probably when they didn't have enough strength, probably when they thought, I don't have what it takes to go on one more step, I don't have it. In the middle of their battle, they cried out to God, Oh, God, send help from heaven. There's more of them than us. This is stronger than I am. This is bigger than I am. So now, let me read to you one more time that fourth verse of the hymn of Francis Havercall, because it might have a little more meaning. Fierce may be the conflict, strong may be the foe, but the king's own army none can overthrow. Round his standard ranging, victory is secure, for his truth unchanging makes the triumph sure. Joyfully enlisting by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. You know, some may be saying, well, I'm wondering if God is on my side. Dear friend, He proved that at Calvary. He more than proved that He's on your side in that which we are about to celebrate. 
question is not this morning, is he on your side? The question this morning is, are you on the Lord's side? Are you calling on God? For when you go vertical, when you call on God, that's when he, he will bring his help. And that is exactly why, church, one of Satan's main diversions is this. Don't pray. Whatever he can do to keep you from praying and calling on God, he'll cause the cell phone to go off. He'll have a new email go pinging into your computer. Right about the time you sit down to call on the name of the Lord, something will happen. It will, he'll use whatever he can. Don't go to the prayer service. No, 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 no. He'll divert you from that. But here's the reality. Our God has an ear that is open to our cry. In fact, he says to the prophet Jeremiah, call unto me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things that you know not. So why did God help those guys in the midst of their battle? Because they called on him and they trusted him. And then look at all the stuff they got as a result of calling on God and simply trusting Him. They were more than conquerors. And you can be too. We win because the battle is the Lord's. We win because Jesus paid the price in full on the cross of Calvary. And that's what we celebrate this morning. Let's stand together.